We're back. And we're going to talk about obituaries, as we like to do in this program, because, well, one can learn a lot from different lives, even if you're taking a look back at one that's just recently ended. Billionaire Steve Fawcett is now an official obituary in the wake of the finding of the wreckage of his airplane in the Sierra Mountains. There'd been some speculation of late that, uh, you know, perhaps he faked his death, given the extensiveness of the survey uh, using satellite technology, etc., photos from space, in the search for the plane. But uh, clearly such is not the case. Uh, The plane was described as having a hard impact uh, into the mountainside. Mountain flying is especially tricky, what with downdrafts coming over the crest of, uh, of the hillside. And it could well be that even though Fawcett was an experienced pilot, uh, he fell victim to one of those. One of the most unusual uh, obituaries we've encountered in quite a while deserves a bit of comment. This was the passing of Soviet satirist Boris Yefimov. Yefimov was a cartoonist. He was no ordinary cartoonist. He was a favorite of Joseph Stalin. Yefimov died a couple of weeks ago, two days after his 109th birthday. Following the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, Yefimov joined Izvestia as a cartoonist and became a devoted follower of Leon Trotsky. In fact, in 1924, he reportedly asked the radical leader to write a foreword to his first book of cartoons. Trotsky paged through the portfolio, liked what he saw, and agreed, said Yefimov. When Trotsky fell from power, he... Yefimov feared that his, uh, his association with Stalin's chief rival might cost him his life. And indeed, in 1940, Stalin ordered the execution of Yefimov's brother Mikhail, who had founded the illustrated journal Ogonyik, and reportedly, quote, ignored a warning from Stalin in 1923 not to publish a photo spread on Trotsky, unquote. Yefimov himself was evidently was spared because Stalin needed a good, experienced cartoonist. In fact, After Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, Yefimov became the leading cartoonist of the Great Patriotic War. In his largely illiterate country, his caricatures were invaluable propaganda tools. Yefimov's lampoons apparently so infuriated the Fuhrer that he vowed to shoot the artist when he captured Moscow. Yefimov always said he'd rather confront an angry Hitler than a disappointed Stalin. Although his influence diminished after Stalin's death in 1953, he became something of a national treasure, drawing visitors for decades and regaling them with the tales of his memories of uh, Soviet masters. According to The Week magazine, he reflected often on the devil's bargain he had struck with Stalin. Yes, he destroyed my brother. He was a villain. He murdered many innocent people. A dreadful man. But still, a certain human logic wins out. He is also the person who granted me my life, my freedom, my work. We talked earlier in the show about uh, the, the judgment at Nuremberg. I would mention an excellent article titled Nazis in the Dock, which was in the new magazine BBC Knowledge, which, which we wish well. They had a little sidebar in history that I think is worthy of, uh, of quoting. Among the charges at Nuremberg, bombing was not on the list. Both sides at the war trials, both victors and vanquished, knew that the Allies had also been guilty of war crimes. In fact, the German army had a war crimes bureau which investigated Soviet war crimes such as the murder of prisoners of war, acts of military terrorism, and the killing of Red Cross personnel. 
The Germans were viewing identifying and punishing the guilty if they won the war. The article notes that the issue on which the Allies were most vulnerable was the bombing of German and other European cities, which resulted in the deaths of at least a half million civilians. As the Allies began to prepare the trials in the summer of 1945, they realized that if they accused the Hitler regime of bombing as a war crime, they left themselves open to accusations that they had bombed cities and killed civilians just as unscrupulously. Thus, it was in June 1945 that the accusation of bombing was quietly dropped from the charges being prepared against the major war criminals. General Curtis LeMay, who led much of the Allied bombing efforts in World War II, made no bones about it and said that, uh, that had we lost the war, he definitely would have been tried as a war criminal. I was surprised to learn that it was only in 1977, under the terms of the so-called Geneva Protocols, that the, the deliberate bombing of civilians was finally defined as violating the laws of war, which was evidently at least four years too late to keep Henry Kissinger from getting his Nobel Peace Prize. And speaking of the Nobel Prize, uh, the Economist magazine October 11th issue had some interesting things to say about the current crop of, of prizes. Noted the magazine, sometimes the absence of something can be as telling as its presence. So it is with this year's Nobel Prize for Medicine. Two of the winners were Luc Montagnier and Francois barre Senossi, who got it for the discovery of HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. But the third winner of the prize, and convention dictates that the prize is split a maximum of three ways, was Harald Zurhausen, awarded it for a completely different study, the one which showed that human papillomaviruses cause cervical cancer. Magazine notes that dividing the prize between two studies is not unusual. In this case, though, it was rather pointed. What the committee did not do was name a third HIV researcher to share the glory of the prize. That would be specifically American Robert Gallo. By omitting Gallo, it's thought by many that this sort of undoes the injustice of the cobbled-together diplomatic agreement between America and France made back in 1987, which let Dr. Gallo, an American, share the credit for the discovery with Luc Montagnier, a Frenchman. A lot of workers in the field think the true credit belongs overwhelmingly to Dr. Montagnier and his team, which included Dr. Barre Senossi. We have talked about this on the program in the past and how we predicted, I, I do want to say, that Dr. Gallo would never get the Nobel Prize for the discovery of HIV. Although it was, in fact, a Gallo's research at the American National Cancer Institute, which provided the proof that the HIV virus did cause AIDS, the fact of the matter is, he did not isolate the virus on his own. The virus he used was definitely that of Montagnier from the Pasteur Institute. The magazine ra rather kindly and diplomatically states that Gallo, by means that remain obscure, but probably as the result of accidental contamination of another sample from Dr. Montagnier's laboratory, well, that was the virus he so supposedly independently isolated. We've talked about politics intruding on science in this program many times in the past, and we'll do again, but this does appear to be an example where the Reagan administration, being roundly criticized justifiably for its minimalistic efforts to find out what was the root of AIDS, well, it needed a PR coup, and, uh, and uh, Robert Gallo uh, made it look as though we were on equal footing with other researchers around the world in how aggressively we were looking into AIDS. We'd highly recommend uh, Randy Schultz's classic, And the Band Played On, 
to uh, further your knowledge of this area. It clearly makes the case that the Reagan administration and the NIH uh, during the Reagan years was sitting on its hands. Given the fact, and I hate to say this, but the contention was made by Randy Schultz and others, and certainly substantiated by his work, that uh, certain people in the administration thought that a disease that killed homosexuals and IV drug abusers was probably sent by God. Anyway, we agreed with this consensus that Robert Gallo was not deserving of sharing the Nobel Prize, and we're glad to see that the, the Nobel Prize committee uh, agreed. All right, let's take a minute to talk about the Ig Nobel Prizes. These awards are very amusing, and we're, we're pleased to have spoken with Dr. Ivan Schwab of UC Davis, who did a, what we think is actually quite an interesting study of why woodpeckers are able to slam their uh, beaks into wood and not develop a headache or sustain physical damage. It seems to win an Ig Nobel Prize, you have to have something that's rather whimsical or just, just sounds funny. But a lot of it's pretty good research. We, uh, we spoke uh, a few weeks back to Dr. Simon Singh about the placebo effect, and they awarded an Ig Nobel in medicine to Dan O'Reilly for demonstrating that expensive fake medicine can be, can be more effective than cheap fake medicine. And I think that was mentioned in the book. That is one of, one of the ways in which placebos work. I mean, if it's more expensive, <laughs> you, you imagine that it must be better. So it works better. Similarly, the Ig Nobel in Nutrition was awarded to Massimiliano Zampini and Charles Spence for demonstrating that food tastes better when it sounds better. Similar psychology, we think. Actually, we talked about both of those and what was eventually to win the Ig Nobel in Economics, a study by Jeffrey Miller, Joshua Tyler, and Brent Jordan for discovering that exotic dancers earn more when they're at peak fertility. Actually... Here's a fourth one I think we also mentioned from the list. Uh, uh, There must be like minds here at the Ig Nobel Awards. The prize in physics was awarded to Dorian Raymer and Douglas Smith for proving that heaps of string or hair will inevitably tangle. I don't know. it's, It's whimsical, but it sounds like good science to me. Now, something that really is deserving of an Ig Nobel from being ignominious might be the the Ig Nobel in Peace, awarded to the Swiss Federal Ethics Committee on Non-Human Biotechnology and the citizens of Switzerland for adopting the legal principle that plants have dignity. I did get a kick out of the fact that the Ig Nobel in Chemistry was awarded to Cherie, Ompierre, Joseph Hill, and Deborah Anderson for discovering that Coca-Cola is indeed an effective spermicide. We would add the caveat, please, please do not try this at home. And would add with some glee that when they asked a spokesman for Coca-Cola to comment on this particular matter, they declined. Of course, this was somewhat balanced up by the fact that the Ig Nobel was simultaneously awarded to C.Y. Hong, C.C. Shi, P. Wu, and B.N. Chang for their research on Coca-Cola, showing that it was in fact not a good spermicide. So clearly, ladies and gentlemen, the scientific jury is still out on this one. A final award we should comment on, uh, that in biology was awarded to Marie-Christine Cadieres, Christabel Jobert, and Michelle Franck for their discovery that fleas that live on dogs can jump higher than fleas that live on cats. So if you are engaged in wagering on this matter, you now have a bit of a leg up. Go with the canine fleas, not the feline. All right, let's close with, uh, with a news item which is uh, central to UC Davis. 
rather startling expose by Lance Williams in the San Francisco Chronicle about the Cal Aggie Marching Band. Apparently, the man appointed to be the director of the marching band is currently on administrative leave. The director is on stress leave, apparently because he's been unable to make the band behave. According to the article, when, when Tom Slabaugh tried to get the band to behave, he faced a barrage of obscene insults and gestures and even a lewd Christmas card from the trombone section. Frustrated because he did not have the power to expel these out-of-control musicians, he's now taken the unusual step of filing a sexual harassment complaint with the university, citing the Kalangi band as a hostile work environment. And there certainly have been incidents along the way. On a road trip last year to the football game at Portland State, a trumpet player yelled, Naked Van! And everybody in the vehicle, men and women alike reportedly, stripped to their underwear. Slaba ordered band members to put their clothes back on, but they ignored him, he said in a memo. Meanwhile, evidently, a sousaphone player and clarinetist wrote, I love boobs in masking tape on the van's window. This reportedly caused a motorist who saw the van on I-5 in Oregon to complain to the university. Said the Chronicle, the Naked Van episode was one in a series of, quote, ridiculous, disturbing, and offensive, unquote, incidences some of them alcohol-fueled, that Slabaugh says he witnessed in his year with the Cal Aggies. In response to his complaint, a university sexual harassment officer gave sexual harassment training to the band. She also did a walkthrough through the band room and ordered offensive signs, pictures, condoms, etc. removed from the walls. Yes, this sounds like a pretty serious matter to us. And as investigations proceed, we'll be sure to report on them for you. We just want to close with a section delineated in the Chronicle under College Bands That Marched Into Trouble. Stanford University has been quite a leader in this area. As reported on Radio Parallax, their student tree mascot was suspended for performing while drunk in 2006. We were not sure on this program how it was being drunk would affect the performance of a marching band mascot. At least, we weren't sure how it would hurt that performance. We do have some follow-up. The replacement tree mascot was ejected from a women's basketball tournament for dancing in undesignated areas. The tree was also banned from the University of Notre Dame for a routine in which the conductor dressed as a nun used a crucifix as a baton. The band was also suspended for mooning fans back in 1986. Now, the folks down south really take their marching bands uh, pretty seriously. So you can imagine how disappointed they were at Texas Southern University when 17 band members shoplifted on a trip to the Coca-Cola Bowl in Japan. Twelve band members were suspended while 17 received probation. Now, down at Jackson State University in Mississippi, uh, they got probation for forcing musicians who played their parts incorrectly to do push-ups. Apparently, both Prairie View A&M from Texas and Southern University of Louisiana were suspended for a halftime brawl in which Prairie View's sousaphones were damaged the amount of $20,000. And my personal favorite, the University of Virginia had to disband their pep band after a halftime skit wherein they mocked the University of West Virginia as hillbillies. Our thanks to Bob Newman of Newman Communications and our old pal Will Durst. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. 
You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. 76 trombones led the big parade With 110 cornets close at hand They were followed by rows and rows Of the finest virtuosos The cream of every famous band 76 trombones caught the morning sun With 110 cornets right behind There were more than a thousand reeds Springing up like weeds There were horns of every shape and kind there were copper bottom timpani and horse platoons Thundering, thundering all along the way Double bell euphoniums and big bassoons Each bassoon having his big fat say There were fifty mounted cannon in the battery Thundering, thundering louder than before Clarinets of every size and trumpeters Who'd improvise a full octave higher than the score 